This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. Not important right now. That is because we are profoundly lucky to have with us in the studio today, Dr. M. R. Rajagopal. The founder and chairman of Pallium India, a palliative care non-governmental organization based in Kerala, India. A man who is a 2018 nominee for the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, Dr. Rajagopal, welcome to the Short Code Podcast. Thank you. Very pleased to be here with you. I'm also joined by some perhaps future Nobel Prize nominees. No pressure. (laughs) But uh, I'm referring to my co-host today, Jaden Bowen. Hi, everyone. Tony Rosenberg. Hey, that's me. Ellie Jin. Hello. And Rachel Schenkel, my friends. Thank Hi, you for joining us today. I'm sorry, I walked over your <laughs> Hi. I apologize. <laughs> Dr. Rajagopal, the New York Times called you the father of palliative care in India, and your organization, Pallium India, has accomplished some important things in its time. For instance, in a country where nationally palliative care is available to um, a small fraction of those who need it, um, I think that what I read was 1%. Um, Pallium India has managed to reach 40% of those people in your home state of Kerala. Uh, has it been difficult to convince your colleagues to deliver palliative care, or do people generally understand right from the beginning? <clears throat> it was very easy to convince the public about the value of palliative care. Some professionals spontaneously offered support and joined the movement, but As you can imagine, that huge shift from disease-focused care to quality of life is not necessarily easy for the professional. That's not what they are trained to do. So there was some resistance and there still is some resistance from the professionals, some of the professionals, but things are changing for the better. Yeah, I mean, I think that kind of goes into one of the questions that I was wondering about. And that kind of hinges on this idea that seems like the public um, was very accepting of palliative care as an idea moving forward. Whereas here, a lot of times, an issue that we can run into is that a lot of the patients associate palliative care with hospice care. And there's a lot of initial resistance to this idea of palliative care before they have a good idea of what that means. Um, So I guess, in your opinion, how how should we go about maybe educating people earlier than when they might need to have that discussion physically or medically. Tony, that uh, phenomenon is universal and palliative care is misunderstood the world over, including in my country. Mm -hmm. And very often we get patients in the last two days of their lives. It happens. Uh, I think uh, you and I have the responsibility to be advocates for people who are suffering. The suffering is induced both because of ignorance and also because of love. The family does not want to give up the loved one Mm -hmm. and want uh, the oncologist or other physician to keep on fighting. So all these are realities. 
Having said that, the more we get it into public discussions, the more the relief that we are able to bring to the suffering. It's going to be a long, hard struggle. When I said the public was receptive, it means the public was receptive of the idea of quality of life, hmm. of treating pain, of treating suffering. They also struggle with issues at the end of life in my country also. Mm-hmm. Okay. When you first started, you mentioned there were some healthcare workers who wanted to get involved from the beginning. Were they in certain specialties or did you see any patterns with that when they were getting involved from the start? Uh, <clears throat> the people, I, it was not confined to any speciality, I would mm-hmm. think. Uh, if you talk about something like this, you do not expect really every professional to get enthused. But the reality is, whether it's among the medical professionals mm-hmm. or any professionals or carpenters, plumbers, the man on the street, there are some people who have a lot of compassion in them. They would listen more. Mm-hmm. There would be, I mean, so I don't think it was confined to any one particular speciality. Mm-hmm. But I would also tell you that the medical students were more receptive than professionals. Okay. <laughs> It's like an empty cup being able to receive more, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. You said one of the big things for getting people more to more accept the idea of palliative care um, is to educate them more about it and to talk about it more in a public space. And how is, would you say is the best way to go about doing that? Or what have you found successful for doing that? Rachel, maybe the education shouldn't be only about palliative care. It should be about health as a whole. Today, mostly, health care is something that is given by the medical institution to the person with the disease. That's not really what health is. Health is about physical, social and mental well-being. I think we, the professionals, we professionals need to engage the common man and make it possible that healthcare is a partnership between us the man with the health issue and the man who is likely to have the health issue which is also us mm-hmm. once we realize that that partnership can be established but specifically about palliative care yes it is a, even today it is still a new concept concept to a lot of people so engaging in those discussions is important uh, it's very often we think about us as professionals and patients as them not realizing that tomorrow we are in that position right. so it affects everybody and uh, that public engagement in healthcare and palliative care i believe is important so how do you go about it what we did in the beginning was wherever we got somebody to listen we talked to them we would go to the rotarians the lions club arts and sports club students uh, associations schools colleges wherever we could we talk to people and something i guess i was kind of thinking about a little bit was you know i watched the documentary um hippocratic that was um made about you and just to kind of get a a bit of a better idea about your background and kind of growing up in the beginnings of your interest in palliative care Um and something I thought was kind of a striking difference between growing up um in a suburb of Chicago for me and you know 
sounds like growing up in India is that you didn't have really any choice in whether or not you witnessed pain and suffering and death. And I think, you know, in our society, we do everything we can to shield children from ever seeing anything like that. So I guess from my perspective, I'm just kind of wondering, is there is there a balance between not being exposed to it at all and, you know, growing up somewhere that you have no choice in the matter and kind of talking about it and almost normalizing it as death being a part of, of life and for everyone that that happens um, and what you think about that maybe. Tony, I think what you asked is very relevant to Rachel's question earlier. Engaging the public means accepting human mortality as a reality. Mm-hmm. Death is not necessarily the enemy. Death is the inevitable consequence of life. Look, I've been taught something by some Bhutanese friends. In Bhutan, there is a, a custom or the religion advises them to think about one's own death between various sects at least once uh, in some uh, communities five times a day <laughs> they have to think about their own death and remember though they are getting civilized and less happy now at one time they were said to be the happiest people on earth <laughs> global happiness index Bhutan was on top <laughs> no i'm not saying that it was only because they accepted death but they accepted life mm. with all its positives and negatives and when we shield children from those realities i believe they grow up unhealthy that's the first time i've ever heard of the global happiness index <laughs> <laughs> that concept was brought up by the bhutanese and okay. actually in the united nations a bhutanese minister got up and made that speech and you he challenged our gdp mm-hmm. measurement of progress by gdp right you have the greatest gdp are you the happiest people on the earth and then of course people developed indicators to measure global happiness <laughs> maybe that spoiled the show a little bit <laughs> but uh, they they have now dropped in the index okay they are also looking towards civilization and westernization yeah mm. Are there any lessons uh, that you've learned providing palliative care that you would particularly like other physicians to know? I, I think my patients taught me the greatest lessons. I think we, the medical professionals, fail to understand what are the things that are really important to the person with the disease certainly if there is overcoming overpowering symptom they would want relief they certainly would want cure if cure is possible and sometimes they would unrealistically keep on trying for cure and if we go along that we are doing the medical service if cure is not possible i think we have the responsibility to help the person to come to terms with it not destroying hope but maintaining realistic hope i think that's the crux of it maintaining realistic hope is so vital because hopelessness means destruction mm. so if only 
somebody sits down with that person with the incurable illness and listens to the story you will find a couple of things you will find what really connects them to this universe which certainly is likely to be his family but it's also likely to be his home his environment the tree that he can see outside the window all that may be important to him and when we for better monitoring of his heart shut him up inside an intensive care unit and allow them to die in hospitals we are depriving them of what they feel connected mm-hmm. secondly very often we make them lose the meaning of life for them some day my end will come in my last week what will be important for me mm-hmm. my degree the money i have made my car my home <laughs> nothing is important at that time except the love that i am able to give and the love that i am able to receive that is precisely what the medical system denies them and if i have learned one lesson it is to remember that human beings are human beings with all their strengths and weaknesses and we have to maintain meaning of life and connectedness for them that's beautiful i, mm-hmm. I, I um i really appreciate that and i think it's it's interesting because I mean I I completely agree with everything that you said and at the same time this whole process of you know getting into medical school and and studying hard and having a type A personality and all of that stuff it tends to select for people um who maybe haven't experienced a lot of suffering of their own and yet as you kind of touched on and mentioned it's being able to relate to and allow room for that suffering to breathe and to meet that patient where they are that might be the most important role that we have to play um so how do you think in in this whole process of selecting people to become physicians we can correct for this nature of perfectionism and also you know select people who are going to study well and be able to do the job tony uh, thank you for asking the question I fear that someday you will have to find the answer <laughs> because because whom do we want to be doctors nurses and other health professionals people with the right combination of the head the heart and the hands so you certainly need people with the brain but also with the compassion and the skills to do things what are we measuring at the entrance point for admission mostly only the brain power mm-hmm. that is a big problem i don't know if you have heard of melvin corner mm-hmm. he is from atlanta he is an anthropologist who in his 30s trained as a medical student have read what he r- writes on precisely the question that you ask and the conclusion unfortunately <laughs> is that we do not have a good system for measuring people for their ability to be compassionate knowledgeable and skillful doctors mm-hmm. that is something that we will still have to develop mm-hmm. that can be your nobel prize tony yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and maybe it's because i i just turned 30 myself and was a saxophone performance major before deciding to come oh, to medical right. school so i had a very weird path to get here mm-hmm. but i think in a lot of ways that really helps me um and not saying that my awesome classmates who didn't take that path aren't equally as compassionate or 
have their own experiences, but I think for me, I had to experience some of the, the down points prior to starting medical school in order to be able to relate to patients um, and to sit there with them, because I might not always have the, the knowledge, and I'll, I'll look it up or ask for help, but the least I can do, I feel, is, is to listen. Um, so, Tony, Tony, you have company. Uh, Dame mm-hmm. Cicely Saunders, the founder of the modern palliative care movement, herself became a medical student in her 30s. Mm-hmm. She found that um, because she was a nurse and a social worker later, doctors would not listen to her. Mm-hmm. And a senior doctor told her, go and read medicine unless you are a doctor. No doctor will listen to you. So she finally became a doctor in her <laughs> late 30s. Speaking of being a medical student and your path to uh, your later work, how how has that journey been for you? If you think back to when you were a medical student and then now the work that you're doing, what kind of decisions and course along the way? Uh, <clears throat> as a medical student, There were several things to be learned from what the teachers taught and from the books. Mm -hmm. But we also got some lessons from unspoken action and from body language. What I unfortunately learned was to turn away from suffering. Mm -hmm. To concentrate only on diseases. Mind you, no teacher actually told me that in so many words. But that's what I saw. I I mean I recently talked to medical students in my hometown and found that they have an organization which um, if if some patient or family member is actually starving because they find themselves without money these people make sure that they get food mm. and I was almost jealous of them because <laughs> I was then kicking myself what kind of a medical student were you I learned just to be mechanical like most people. So why am I saying this? I am saying that the current system with its focus on diseases mm. actually are killing compassion in people. And just giving permission to medical students and nursing students to be compassionate actually seems to improve things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Reminds me a lot of like hidden curriculum type mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. where um, sometimes what you learn in the classroom about how things run is very different than what you learn on the wards about how things are run mm-hmm. and how to value which one is which and keep your priorities straight, I guess. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it is, I mean, it is hard as a medical student when you see, you know, all of the accolades and, you know, rewards are really for just burying yourself in this disease processed way of thinking. Um, Whereas, I don't know, I guess I, that's been the part that's been the hardest thing for me Mm. is to, is to forget the person behind it. When I feel like in a lot of ways with these standardized tests and the way that things run, you're almost rewarded if you can compartmentalize the patient into this simple equation of if they have these three symptoms, this is what they have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I tend to overthink, uh, you know, a multiple choice question a lot because I'm thinking, oh, well, what is this person like when they go home? How many <laughs> kids do they have? What did they eat for dinner? But that's not 
what matters right now. And so I, I think that that's hard for me um, mm. as a student. Mm. But uh, yes, we we need those grades. Mm-hmm. We need to get our degree. It's absolutely important. But obviously, you feel that compassion inside you. You will be taught the science of therapeutic distancing, which I suppose is necessary up to a point. Mm-hmm. But when you use the therapeutic distance as a weapon rather than a tool, then things mm-hmm. go wrong. Mm-hmm. But with the with the compassion in you, I don't see you at a huge risk, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the rest of us. <laughs> oh, really? I, I hope I have one of you as my daughter when my time comes. <laughs> so I don't know what you... Sorry. So how did you get from the point in medical school where you're taught to turn away from pain to where you are now? Like where did kind of the impetus to to become a palliative care person come from? So Rachel, it was I suppose uh looking back, it was the transformation of being a helpless medical student to somebody who was able to do something. you run away from suffering when you feel totally helpless i mean at least in my case because i was quite a coward there <laughs> but eventually when i became an anesthetist i had the opportunity to treat people's pain and as a junior do- anesthetist i was not allowed to <laughs> but when i only in my late 30s and i found myself with enough authority in the hospital to do something i started treating people's pain why did i because then i had something i could do so maybe nobody had discussed the value of listening of just being there if there was one hour spent on being human hmm. maybe i would not have felt so helpless i wouldn't have run away so much do you do you feel that there's a way that we could encourage students going through um to kind of reflect on these things because you know I know in our curriculum we have certain assignments that it's our job to write a short essay or reflect on something and I think this school really tries to do a good job of encouraging us to to look at the depth of what we're doing um and really the privilege of what we're doing mm-hmm. but a lot of a lot of people don't look at those assignments that way it's kind of this thing to check off um a box to check it's man like uh, i have to do this poetry thing or i have to reflect on x y and z and i really don't want to um whereas you know to to some set of us and i can only speak for myself it's like that's why i'm here and i'm glad and happy to be able to do that so i guess how do we reach those people who maybe such as yourself in in some ways are running away from that pain or having that disconnect between patient and emotion I am so happy to hear that you have that bit of humanities in your curriculum and in your mm-hmm. program and we have to accept that people are different uh some have a little more of machines in them than others but the more it is considered important by the general population the peer pressure is mm-hmm. important mm-hmm. and in one medical college in 
my country i found the students organization really uh, helping out people who need help so this uh, gradually grew to such a big moment that it became fashionable to be compassionate <laughs> no longer was a compassionate person was seen as a weakling Hmm. something despicable it was okay <laughs> and i suppose that that has to happen by involvement of a lot of people in some joint activity hmm. i don't know what you would call it some mission of compassion there hmm. yeah and maybe that speaks i don't know what you guys think but just to western culture in general um you know whether it's like toxic masculinity and that you know men shouldn't cry or have emotions or be sensitive or the cult of individualism. Yeah. Um so I, I don't I think that it could be potentially a cultural thing too that um we need to make it more accessible and more okay for people to to express themselves mm-hmm. and to be compassionate. Um I don't know what do you guys The compassion is in fashion. Yeah. 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 We'll do a campaign. Yeah, compassion is in fashion. And it and it almost sounds like there's these uh differing views of what it means to be strong as a physician. You know, is mm-hmm. it that stoic uh, lack of response in the face of suffering, or is it, you know, that reaching out and connecting with that suffering? Um, and you, you mentioned this idea of therapeutic distance. How do you, as a provider, bridge that gap uh, without, I guess, being crushed by it? You know, if you're seeing mm-hmm. five patients a day that, um, you know, you truly do care about how do you, how do you reach out to them without trying to carry all of that burden? Jaden, uh, that's an important issue that we all in palliative care face when we choose to look at suffering. I think the answer mainly lies in two elements. One is in sharing. Uh, if I feel look this. is a little too much for me i cannot bear this and i'm not taking the burden home in that fashion i just managed to catch hold of a colleague and sit down and we discuss this and discussions like this are not only not certainly seen as a weakness we see those discussions those sharing opportunities as essential for the professional's well-being Mm-hmm. so to a large extent that but the second part is one's own realization and acceptance that i am a human being with all my limitations i am not god almighty i cannot solve all problems and he, this is my limit this is all i can do and that realization helps me to go back home and sleep in the night <laughs> once in a way i must accept that it becomes overpowering mm. but not often but this is something that in palliative care training we discuss often self care mm-hmm. you may not find it in every textbook of medicine but in textbook of palliative medicine you will find that chapter on self care <laughs> And when you think back over the stories that you have shared and the, you know, people's lives that you've been involved with, are there I mean is there, you know, just one that comes to mind when you think about a successful um palliative care effort? I'm sure there's hundreds, but I once treated a woman in her 30s who was dying of pancreatic cancer, a single mother. Mm. Uh 
with an 8-year-old daughter. It's a horrendous story of the, the father of the child actually trying to abuse her, the mm-hmm. child, and the mother running away to save that child. So many of us were overwhelmed by this issue mm-hmm. because when the woman died, the father would become the natural guardian. Mm-hmm. Now, here is where community involvement also becomes important. The situation could be, that was one of the situations where I found it a bit, bit difficult to get to sleep in the mm-hmm. night. Mm-hmm. And the uh, answer came in the form of a lawyer who knew what to do. There was a statutory body called Child Welfare Council, mm-hmm. which had the authority. So they came, they took the woman's statement, they recorded the rest of the family statements, and before the woman died, there was a government order saying that on the death of the mother, mm-hmm. the grandmother would have custody of the child. Mm. Now, in all my life, I think that was the most satisfying experience. Not the medical interventions, mm-hmm. but the thought that that eight-year-old child could be saved from a fate that could have been worse than death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But thank you for asking that question and reliving, trying to relive the satisfaction of that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm actually on a pediatric palliative rotation right now. And I mean, I feel like that story also illustrates just the impact that palliative care can have on families, you know, in a broader network than even just the person who, you know, is actually um, re- receiving the direct palliative care or is the reason for palliative care the family and community is affected so much by it as well. Ellie and um, talking about children, mm-hmm. they, are, they are the forgotten species. Mm. You, when somebody is dying or is close to death, you talk to the family. The family, you mean the grown-ups, not to the children. Mm. And they carry with them dreadful memories mm-hmm. and questions and agonies. And uh, there is, uh, I, I'm sure she wouldn't mind my mentioning her name. Her name is Alex, a student who had come to us, who wrote an article about her own journey when she was maybe nine or ten. She had grown up seeing the mother ill since the age of five or six. Mm-hmm. And eventually, nobody told her what was happening. No information at all. And one day, she heard the ambulance, sirens shrieking the mother being carried away and she's just standing there mm. pretending to be asleep uh, while she was standing behind the door. And she then remembers her dad coming and saying that you're, he had tears in his face and saying the mother is gone. She said, she says, writes, from that day I traveled the seas, climbed the mountains, traveled in many countries seeking to find an answer to her suffering. Mm. And eventually when she came for a three weeks palliative care course, she realized or she came to the conclusion that her the meaning of her suffering lay in helping other children like that. And she keeps talking about the need to talk to children of families, mm-hmm. to answer their questions and help them to come to peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found just in this rotation a lot of times yeah, the family doesn't want to talk with their kids about what's going on because they're worried it'll, you know, scare them or be frightful. But most of the time, the kids already know something's going on, you know, even if it's 
trying to be hidden or they're trying to protect them from knowing. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah, it's, it can have lifelong effects from that experience. And this, I don't know, it kind of relates to, you know, earlier when I was kind of curious about how do we make this more of a normalized discussion for kids? Because if all of a sudden a parent is sick and they don't know, well, what does this mean? Where are they going? Um, it's going to be a lot more overwhelming than if this was just, you know, from the time that they could understand this was a part of the conversation and, you know, these things can happen. Um, and this is what that would mean. And I, I guess there's a part of me that appreciates that would be a very difficult conversation to have with a child. Um, but I don't think that's a reason to necessarily run away from it. Um, just like it can be difficult to ask someone, you know, do you, do you want to be resuscitated if, if need be? can be difficult but mm. yeah Tony often I find that it is easier to talk to children than to adults mm. <laughs> no pretensions mm -hmm. their questions are very clear they ask it straight mm. like the child who came and asked me but when they bury me won't I suffocate mm. <laughs> and another child asked when will I not be punished by God and uh, for pulling her his sister's hair <laughs> or on steal, even stealing her pen his mm -hmm. committed sins like this so y they ask all this these questions are there they've never asked their parents mm -hmm. and if you give them the opportunity they are frank mm -hmm. and that makes it so much easier for us do you think that because I, I, I love talking to kids um, I find it really enjoyable mostly big part because I can say really weird things to kids that I can't say to adults and they think it's funny um, but it is easy and I and I love how they don't have any filter and they just mm -hmm. kind of tell it as mm -hmm. it is do you think that that is kind of something that we're putting on them that like this is going to be a difficult conversation so we're not having it when in reality it might not be or where do you think the, the issue kind of lies mm. for me the difficulty lay in never having seen it being done mm. and initially I must admit that I found it difficult till I got around to talking to them and then found how easy it was <laughs> so I think it is I think it's our medical education and nursing education not giving due importance to the total health of the child and ignoring them oh after all they are just children mm -hmm. and not understanding enough but then that's possibly a problem with medical education as a whole not giving enough attention to mental health mm -hmm. and particularly ignoring children mm -hmm. i guess and do you have you have two sons is that correct yes that's right um how how was that grow like when they were growing up and they were kids were these discussions that that you had or, or how how is that mm -hmm. conversation between you and, and your sons so when they were growing up and I was doing palliative care and naturally they were interested in people talking about this business and hmm. he would, they would ask questions and I would answer them and uh, therefore even death was discussed and I remember that in his primary school when my younger son was asked to give a talk he chose to talk on palliative care hmm. so it was mentioned I mean, like, and they both were there as maybe 11 and 12 each when my father died in front of them. Mm -hmm. We were all there. Mm -hmm. 
they were part of it kind of as a branch point off of that we you know in the hospital here we have different services that also kind of come along with palliative care so one of those is child life which does um, specifically help with you know siblings or even the patient who's processing this information that they're getting and the conversations they're having um, but we also have art therapists and mm-hmm. music therapists that come in too um, is there any kind of parallel or what are those things like um, for palliative care in India really you must understand that palliative care is still in its infancy mm-hmm. in India Mm-hmm. Okay, my state of Kerala has something, but not enough. And certainly children are marginalized. Mm-hmm. We do not have those luxuries. Mm-hmm. We in our organization does a palliative care clinic for children. And there we have an occupational therapist mm-hmm. and a, a physiotherapist. But these are exceptional things. Right. And not enough attention is given even by us mm-hmm. it's early days yet yeah. but i'm glad that they all exist here but i wonder do they exist only within the campus do we engage the public enough do we advocate for children's right to information maybe we should talk more and engage the common man about healthcare as a whole yeah. particularly about children mm-hmm. especially with mental health Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I kind of expand this out a little bit from the hospital setting. You mentioned palliative care has, you know, not only the physical component with pain and suffering that way, but also emotional um, and spiritual even. And so as as physicians, what role do we have or not have, you know, to to talk about a patient with their spiritual beliefs or to kind of meet them where they're at in, in those terms um, because that's something that I would I would love to do but I don't see a lot of physicians that I'm working with doing that you know um, someone like a chaplain might come in and talk to them which is great um, but do you believe that there's a role for the physician to do that as well you should come hang out on palliative care Tony is there more <laughs> of that <laughs> uh, Tony I think Every healthcare professional should be capable of doing basic assessment of health as a whole. Mm-hmm. And that includes the spiritual domain. It's only when somebody is promising to die soon within the next few weeks that they may find a chaplain coming and helping. Mm-hmm. But if somebody is feeling disconnected, seems to have no meaning in life, they all should have that kind of support. Mm-hmm. And I think, especially today in most of the world, spiritual health is associated too much with religion and faith. Mm-hmm. And that is part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And if the, person, if the person doesn't have enough faith by the professional's evaluation, then they get a bit of God forced down their throats, mm-hmm. adding to the suffering. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me, a couple of weeks ago, we had a conversation with our palliative care team just about how, in theory, it would be nice if you didn't even have to have a set-aside palliative care team, that it would just be inherent um, in being a doctor and in caring for people or being another kind of professional or even just someone in the community who's reaching out to those people. Like, you may not even need this set-aside specialty or area of focus because it should just be included. And I thought that was an interesting idea that I hadn't really thought about because 
you know, as a doctor, you, I mean, I think should be compassionate and have those conversations to really know your patients. Mm-hmm. Really, in 2014, the World Health Assembly passed a resolution asking all member countries to integrate palliative care into all health care mm. at all levels, primary, secondary, tertiary, across the continuum of care from the beginning of the problem to the end. Mm-hmm. They are not talking about chronic diseases or life-threatening diseases. Right. All health care. And this is 2518. I <laughs> foresee that departments <laughs> of palliative medicine would be abolished <laughs> because every health care professional mm. looks at quality of life. Maybe in that utopia, <laughs> that may happen. Yeah, and I, I, I think it kind of... I think as physicians, ideally, we would all have some type of spiritual groundedness um, outside of, like you mentioned, kind of a religious aspect that goes along with it many times. But I don't think necessarily that a lot of physicians do have that um, or that they haven't come to that point in their life that they've really kind of delved into that, at least in medical school. Um, And it's interesting because I'm interested in maybe going into um, neuro-oncology And when I tell people that, they say, oh, how could you do that? That's so sad. I could never do that. Um, and from my perspective, it's it's more like these people are going to have brain cancer, whether or not I'm there or not. Um, in almost kind of this position of, of privilege to, to be there with someone when they're experiencing that um, and to try and, I guess, lessen that suffering a little bit. Um, How, how have you found that in your like evolving practice over time, that, that idea of, of privilege and being there for someone at the end of their life um, and knowing how to kind of walk that line between almost like fighting and then knowing, okay, this is something that we can't fight and we need to talk more about just comfort? Of course, it has been a huge privilege, Tony. Like uh, when you talk about talk to people at the most vulnerable times in their lives. They open up like children. They share their lives with you. And I don't think many people in the world have that privilege. Mm -hmm. It is indeed a huge privilege. And your friends who consider neuro-oncology sad are going to have their professional life rather tough because even outside of neural oncology or any hmm. oncology things are going to be sad anyway with mm. health issues and only one third of diseases or less are curable anyway hmm. so they cannot run away from that and if they are hoping to cure all their patients then they are going to be frustrated and they are going to turn away from suffering pretend that it doesn't exist but i I have so much of admiration for your clarity of thought and that what you said about being there and privilege of being there, the privilege of having them share their lives with us. I think it's a huge, it's not a small thing at all. And uh, I think all of us in this so-called healing profession, <laughs> if we do not recognize that we are missing something enormous. And I liked what you said earlier about just spending time with people and making a point to ask them about their life. So asking, you know, what is the story of your life been? Because not many people are ever asked that question. 
not only they are not asked if your grandfather tries to tell the story of his your life you tend to run away <laughs> <laughs> oh grandpa not that story again <laughs> not recognizing that if that person is repeating a story maybe there's a lot of depth to it mm-hmm. and if you sat there and asked five more questions a lot more will come out of it mm-hmm. and thereafter he may not feel the need to repeat it I guess kind of piggybacking off of that question um just to know a little bit more about you uh, outside <laughs> of the profession um what do you like to do for fun or you know when you're not going around and speaking and and hanging out in Iowa hanging, hanging out in Iowa <laughs> yeah telling the story of my life again and again yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. playing with my grandchildren mm. oh that's nice. like listening to music mm-hmm. yeah what kind of music I, do you like it's i wish i could say that it was great classical uh, <laughs> oh, we just want the in, truth <laughs> yeah <laughs> the music but so ordinarily you know the bollywood uh, kind of thing yes good enough for me mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the real And question I, is do you sing along <laughs> <laughs> do you dance along <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's not going to answer <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, tells do I like doing I like to walk mm-hmm. a lot nice well we've been talking today with uh, Dr. MR Rajagopal the founder and chairman of Pallium India palliative care NGO in Kerala India thank you for talking with us today it's been amazing thank you thank you i enjoy talking and <laughs> i think after this discussion i have become about 10 years younger <laughs> <laughs> that's how i feel doing the show with these guys every week thank you so much. and uh jaden tony ellie rachel thank you so much for being on the show today and thank you listeners for making us a part of your week if you like what you heard today we hope we've earned your subscription not only do we interview lovely people we give out free and possibly good advice so send your questions or whatever you like to the shortcodes at gmail.com or you can leave us a message at 347 short CT. We'll talk about it on the show. And don't forget to contribute your recipes for med school success by visiting theshortcoat.com and clicking on the orange send in a recipe button. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our executive producer is Jason Lewis. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox and our closing music is by Catmosphere. Talk to you in one week. Bye.